and welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and this series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. We sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. Today, we're coming to you from the Yale School of Management, where we're speaking to Professor Zoe Chance. Zoe is one of the world's leading experts on influence and persuasion. In fact, Zoe's Mastering Influence and Persuasion class is the most sought after elective on the Yale MBA program, and for very good reason. She holds a doctorate from Harvard, and has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, Harvard Business Review, Scientific America, and uh, the Journal of American Psychology. She speaks on television around the world, and her framework for behavioral change is the foundation for Google's global food policy. But what makes Zoe really stand out is her depth of knowledge and passion for climate. Her understanding of the human challenges in relation to the energy transition and her dedication to climate philanthropy. It was an absolutely fantastic conversation and I hope that you enjoy it. Around 80% of people who listen to this podcast haven't hit the follow button. If I could ask you for a small favour, if you do enjoy our conversations, please do hit that follow button on your app. It would help us in the show more than I could possibly say. Thank you and enjoy the conversation. Zoe, thank you so much for coming in and speaking to us today. And thank you so much for hosting me at this like wonderful, wonderful, wonderful venue in, the, in yeah, your, your home school of Yale. I'm delighted to talk with you. Thank you. And really happy that you came to Yale to be part of the programming on climate that we're working on here. So honor for us. Okay. <laughs> thank you so much. You're too kind. Well, um, your background um, is not exactly typical for, for in, in academia. Uh, you come from um, acting, producing, brand manager for, for, for Mattel, and now you're one of the world's leading uh, voices in, in influence. Um, could you describe like your, your path up to this point? And was there, is there some kind of like, unifying theory that brought you to, to here? Um, you know, like any normal person, I'm just kind of making decisions from day to day. But then you can try to make sense of it and pretend that you had a plan all along, um, which of course I didn't. But a couple of pivotal things for me were growing up as a kid, my family was poor, grew up with a single mom, had two jobs, were living in a one bedroom apartment. My sister and I share the bedroom. Mom sleeps on the couch. And um, I was very conscious of feeling like I didn't belong. And we live, she'd moved us to a relatively affluent area where the schools were really good because in the U.S. we have local funding from property taxes for public schools, which is ridiculous. Anyway, I felt very uninfluential and um, I was also shy and I was also nerdy. And so I was very intentionally trying to practice and learn and understand how do you get people to listen to you and pay attention to you and that's how I ended up in theater. And then that led me to marketing and sales because when you're studying theater, you learn how to connect with people. And when you learn how to connect with people, you can sell them things. So I ended up through another circuitous route, but being a brand manager for Barbie at Mattel and running the $200 million segment of the number one girls brand in the world. And it was a crazy time. And it was super exciting, weird, fun, educational. But I had the sense of dissatisfaction because um, I accidentally ended up there. It wasn't my dream to be there. 
My mom, by the way, didn't even let us play with Barbies. She was a feminist and you were not allowed to have Barbie dolls in the house. So, well, that's probably how I did it. But um, I had the words of this leadership professor kept echoing in my head while I was a brand manager. And this was Morgan McCall, my leadership professor when I was an MBA student at USC. And he said, choose a career that you would sacrifice your life for because you will. And I'm sitting there selling Barbie dolls. We're selling two of them a second. And I'm asking, what would it look like to be really successful? Are we selling three Barbie dolls a second? Girls in the US were receiving five in a year. You know, these petroleum products, they, you know, end up chopping off their hair, taking off their clothes. You can never get them back on again. And then they just go to a landfill. So um, I, when I had that frame of, I'm going to sacrifice my life for this, I couldn't stay in that career. And I decided to join academia to research and teach and try to help people make better decisions and try to help people understand influence as I was learning about it myself. And was there a moment in your, 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 your career up until the point of going back into academia, which can particularly stands out to you as a, um, where you understood the power of influence and the importance of influence and why you therefore wanted to go into that as your, your, your particular field of study? There are probably a lot of points, but one that comes to mind I'm embarrassed to share um, because of your accent, <laughs> which is that when I was working at Mattel, there was this other woman who was in a similar role to mine who was very successful and she was super charismatic and she was a great presenter and she had a British, not an Irish, but a British accent. And she, we thought, the rest of us thought she was just not smart at all and not good at her job at all. But she was an, an incredible presenter and senior management loved her and she was getting promoted and promoted. And uh, I would have paid a lot of money to have a British accent. But also there were a lot of conversations about what's the more important part, doing the work well or sharing the work well, which she did. And at that time, one of these other brand managers gave me the gift of Bob Cialdini's book called Influence. And he was an academic marketing professor who went undercover as a used car salesman to learn the tricks of the trade. And then he did a lot of academic research on it. And I read that book and I wanted to be him. And I left my job and I came to academia. Fantastic. Over recent years, uh, you have been, been more and more engaged in, in climate. Yeah, the title of this uh, series is Conversations on Climate. So could you give us a little bit of a background in, of your, your journey into climate, the climate movement, climate activism? Was it a gradual fa phasing in or was there kind of a moment, a Damascian moment? There was no one moment. I guess for a lot of us, there have been a series of moments. And I was teaching this class at the School of Management where we are now. The class I teach is called Mastering Influence and Persuasion the most popular course at the business school. And I'm trying to teach students how to make good things happen, right? And that's how you and I have connected because we want to make good things happen. I saw my role as to empower other people to make good things happen. I knew that the climate was a problem, but I figured it was a problem for other people to solve. And so bring you know students from the School for the Environment, give them some influence tools, and I kept hiring TAs from the School for the Environment who took 
the climate so seriously that they were willing to make meaningful personal sacrifices and investments, not just in how do they spend their time or how do they spend their money, but very serious conversations and decisions about things like, do I have children or not? And um, they persuaded me in baby steps, like to take a 30-day plant-based food challenge, things like that, that you know we all do together, it's fun. And it was over the course of probably a decade, these conversations where I got finally converted to believing not just this is a huge problem, obviously it's a huge problem, but it's such a big problem and needs to be acted on so quickly that there is no person who is off the hook and can leave this problem to other people. And that means whoever we are, whatever we do, whatever sphere of influence we have, whatever resources and abilities we have, we need to focus on this problem now. And what I'm able to do is Yes, to empower some other people, to talk about it, to help climate activists and sustainability professionals to have some tools of influence and to give some money to organizations who are working on this. So I do a great deal of that now because my students influenced me. And we were talking a little bit before this conversation, but I would love to hear about your conversion <laughs> path because you weren't on an obvious path to be a climate guy. No, 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 absolutely, absolutely right, yeah. No, I was, <clears throat> my background was uh, as a lawyer, then an investment banker, and after you spend, God says, you know, 15 years doing those two things, you need to be redeeming your immortal soul somehow. <laughs> this is, you know, um, had to make a decision, do I want to do this for the, for the rest of my days? And, you know, moments of you know, time of you know, reflection, um, did the MBA and um, decided, no, I, I, there's more important things in life than just the, the pursuit of money. You know, and uh, we've got a much bigger, um, much bigger, bigger issues to be solved. And uh, for me at the time, I thought that, that the climate crisis, that the energy transition was the biggest challenge that we as humans have. You know, unless we get that right, nothing will be Nothing. Nothing else matters. Uh, but it was very. It was a slow, slow, steady build up onto that point. Uh, for a lot of years, all all you're focused on was was what you measured on, like quarterly performance, quarterly performance, quarterly performance. It become that becomes pretty hollow over time, and you start to wonder, well, what are you actually doing things for? And you know, then you have children, and you look around and go, well, you know, this planet, it's it's kind of important. And you know, I had a couple of very, very uh, two, probably my two two closest friends, closest friends, um, both studied environmental um, science in, in in university in in Trinity in Dublin, and over the years they have been, you know, it's 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 seeped in, you know, Simon Mark, it's seeped in, it works. <laughs> For each of us, it was mm. conversations about conversation. climate exactly. that yeah, yeah, had yeah. us end up being here today, having, <laughs> having a conversation, conversation about climate. Exactly about climate. <laughs> it's kind of mm -hmm. like, uh, at least my understanding of religious conversions, that it doesn't happen that someone converts to a new belief or new religion in one conversation, but a series of conversations. If there's going to be any hope of conversion, that it's just drop by drop. I feel like I talk to a lot of activists and, um, and, and business people who are passionate about the climate, who are frustrated at how little impact they feel they're having in these conversations. And I wish they could talk to more people like us to tell them you're having an impact, you're just not seeing it. And conversion is a group effort. 
Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And there's, there are tipping points in 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 ecologies, tipping points in life. There's tipping points in in humans, and you know, slowly but surely, people kind of get brought along a path, and then suddenly, oh, I get it. Yeah, but <laughs> this but is important. There, and there are more tipping points too, and decision points where maybe first, for some of us who haven't even the thought it was a thing, we realize climate the climate crisis is really a thing and then oh my god it's happening much faster than we might have thought that it was happening and then and somebody really needs to do something about it but then there's another conversion to actually that somebody includes all of the somebody's include me right and then how much am i going to do to to have this happen by the way my dream job if i didn't have i i have my dream job but my alternate reality dream job is that I would be a documentary movie producer making movies about some of the most important topics. So I love that you've created this project as you're, you're now a documentary film producer. Cool. So, so cool. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, but yeah, no, it's really kind of interesting, you know, little, little exploration of both of our journeys. Uh, could we take that and kind of move it into the, 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 the academics of it? Like we both had, we both been, been influenced. So yeah. Um, like, let's talk about behavioral science and how does that relate? To how does that relate to our own journeys? This, like, to, right? to how, how we ended up, you know, being where we are sitting in these chairs um, from very different places. It's because of influence, of places we were influenced on the way. How does, how does academia help us understand those journeys? Yeah, there are a few key things that came up implicitly in this um, path that we've just drawn out for ourselves. And one of them is that we can be very resistant to people trying to change our minds if they are if we perceive them as disagreeing with us completely we there's this what's called a false polarization bias so we tend to imagine someone who disagrees with us or really disagrees with us the more passionate we are about a cause or an idea the more we imagine other people to be extreme the reality is that there's more overlap than not on just about every controversial topic so we're not having enough conversations in general because so many of us are just imagining that other people totally disagree. And like in the United States, the climate is a political topic, which is completely crazy. So this is very hard for us. So we're not having as many of these conversations. And then also the people we are open-minded to even listening to are people that we love and we trust. And that's what was going on for us. So it's not just that random people were knocking on your door and saying, hey, Chris, let us tell you about the climate. But these two people you really care about, you're close friends with, who are having these conversations with you over time. And for me too, my TAs, especially in my students, who I love, admire, and I listen to them about other topics, were open-minded to listening to people about these topics too. And this is why Catherine Hayhoe's book has been very successful to help spark conversations about climate. So when we're talking about influence, people often think about sales and marketing and transactional, you know, negotiations where you're trying to get something from somebody and it's a an arm's length transaction, right? But the real way that influence happens most often is in conversations between people we know and typically people we like. And this is where we can have the most influence on one another, is with the people that we know and helping those people to influence the people 
that they know. And, and people we know are always going to include leaders of the organizations that we're in and elect, elected representatives who we're voting for. Mm -hmm. Like we have some influence over them. But to say, who are the people I can influence rather than just, you know, how can I show up to a rally, post something on social media or things like this? Yeah, yeah. I think that there, you draw a really important distinction there between people that you actually know who influence you and influencers, who are people that you might feel like you know, but you don't. And they don't, they don't know who you are. No, I, actually, I would say, but it just depends on your definition of influencer. But all of us know some people who are more influential and have more of a voice than the other people we know. And it's a huge deal to ask those people for their influence, for the topics that we might agree with them on. And there's very little um, spontaneously taking up a mantle and doing something that we didn't ask for. So even, say, on social media, people who you're friends with, maybe you know them in real life, maybe not, but to literally just ask them, send them a message, when you, there's any kind of relationship to say, hey, is this something that you might be willing to share? And if there's some kind of relationship, yes. But like, even if you're in an elementary school or you're a high school student, research on, so Betsy Levy Palak, who's at Princeton, has done really great behavioral research on anti-bullying programs. And she finds that finding the influencers within the high schools is how to have these programs be much more successful than trying to give a program to everybody and recruit everybody. And, you know, it's not surprising that if you think of influencers as popular kids, that, yeah, they do, they do start trends and set social norms. And we just all have that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And influencers in the more kind of, you know, social media sense of the words, um, do they have a part to play? Everybody has a part to play and they have a lot of eyeballs, they have a lot of traction, and there are a lot of influential people, including social media influencers, who are lending their voice to the causes, that, and you and I believe it should be the climate crisis. There are other good causes too, um, just not as good as ours. I have this fight with my husband who works in democracy. Um, democracy is important too, but... <laughs> Democracy doesn't exist unless we get this right. <laughs> yeah, he, he argues that democracy is how we fix anyway. Um, and, and the public sphere. Both are important. And the media. <laughs> both are important, but you and I, yeah, you and I right. are right. Yeah. Um, everyone who has influence. So everyone who is a leader of an organization, everyone who has leads a team, right? Even people in your family who look up to you so yes, absolutely, this includes social media influencers. And we see a lot of Hollywood celebrities who use their influence, especially for the climate, but many other causes. And that's the model that all of us should be looking up to. But it doesn't matter if you're not an A-list Hollywood celebrity. We all have influence. So whatever influence we have, we should be using it. And, and by the way, I don't think that we should be using our influence only for whatever is our number one cause, right? Like recently I've been posting about the, the revolution that's happening in Iran because this needs some more attention. And, you know, earlier this year, we're focusing on Ukraine. So we don't need to choose only one out of the menu, but for all of us, and especially this is for <laughs> my, my tenured colleagues in all of academia everywhere, we really just need to step up and put our voice out into the public sphere 
more often on on these important issues. And especially if you're someone who has tenure at a university, your job is secure. You might get canceled on social media and it will suck. You will feel bad and you might cry, but you'll get through it. I hope you don't mind, mind me bringing it up, but in terms of your credentials with, with all this, um, you've taken the really remarkable step of uh, dedicating half of your profits from your from your book, Influences My Superpower, uh, towards the, the climate crisis. Like that's an absolutely remarkable thing to do and hugely unusual in the in the, the field of academia, as, as you say. What, what, what brought you to, to that moment? Thank you. Um, I believe really, really strongly in everything I teach and everything I do is helping people be more influential and I believe in the Spider-Man doctrine, which is with great power comes great responsibility. And that's what you're a perfect example of, right? So you were flying high and achieving and amassing wealth in the work that you were doing. And you look at that and you say, okay, this is, this is one piece of life where it's really helpful to make these kinds of achievements, but that's not enough and then what do you do and so you do projects like this and many other projects and that's how you're here at Yale and working in climate finance right and um and for me I I was really lucky to get a great book deal for this project um for influence is your superpower and it only made sense if I'm wanting to influence people to do good with their influence it would be crazy if I'm saying like okay now give me all of your money right and by donating half of the profits to climate organizations fighting the climate crisis, 350.org is the main one, then I get to be hopefully a role model for some other people because then the question is like, okay, for all of us who do whatever stepping up, and it might be volunteering, it might be philanthropy, whatever way we do it, we're role models for other people. And then we get to have other people questioned and say like, well, hey, she's doing that, or hey, he's doing that. There are other people who could be doing this kind of thing. And you and I know a whole lot of other people who do wonderful things. I know a few people who are donating so much of their income that it's a very meaningful personal sacrifice. I already had a great job, and then I have this book. And so this was, it's much easier to donate some of the extra money that I get, right? And so when you were saying that money is not enough and the pursuit of money is not enough. This is such a privileged position to have, right? Mm -hmm. And for so many people all around the world, that's the thing that they have to take care of first. So yeah, we're that, very fortunate. Yeah, yeah, moving up through those hierarchy of needs. You know, it's, it's, only, it's only when you reach a certain point that you can really be caring, caring yeah. about these things. But yeah, it, it's his in the United States, and I would imagine in Ireland too, but I don't know, um, poorer people give more of their income mm. than richer people do. So, generate yeah. it, and nobody thinks that it should be this way. And a lot of poor people imagine if they had more money, they would be far more generous than rich people would be. And I don't know what the rich people's justification is, but uh, but empathy is a huge piece of it. You were telling me about some direct experience that you had. So you coming from an island nation, visiting other island nations, and how that influenced your feelings 
Yeah, um, when I was younger, my my mum and dad felt it really important that we should be um, exploring the world, seeing the world. Uh, so they, you know, but be you know, in the eighties in Ireland, there wasn't an awful lot of money going around, but you know, they did they did they did, did well enough so we could be taking like little holiday holidays here and there. I went to a lot of island nations. Um, we spent uh, spent quite a lot of time in in Barbados and um, you know, other other places. And you grew very, very fond of particular Barbados, but also other, other island nations. Um, and going back there more recently, um, you really see the difference. You really see, see the difference of erosion. You really see, see the difference that, uh, that hurricanes uh, make. You really see how the sins of the developed world, the Western world, are, are they're paying for them. Part of the, the plan and I have never really mentioned my business at all ever <laughs> on, on any of these any of these podcasts now. But as you bring it up, um, part of our mission now going forward is trying to decarbonize and trying to help uh, island nations decarbonize. Trying to help and trying to put in systems where you can be um, where where if if a hurricane's coming in. You know, we have a little bit of warning. You can take take your wind turbine, um, fold in fold in the blades, lie flat. You know, and just and but buck buck that down. Um, little thing, things like that. These are the types of projects we're we're trying we're trying to get progressively into. <laughs> and and what you're talking about about this direct experience that you had, and you know now we call it maybe lived experience. This is so important for people who are trying to influence other human beings. That if we can give somebody help them have a direct experience, there's just no substitute for that. I was talking to Vincent Stanley, who's Patagonia's chief storyteller. And he was talking about when at Patagonia, there was a decision being made where people were arguing about whether to change from some particular heavy chemical toxic kind of ingredient to some less toxic kind of ingredient that cost a lot more money. And there's not a right answer. It's a gray area, right? How much do we spend on what? And what they did was took the people who were making the decision and fighting about it, piled them into a bus, drove them to the chemical plant that was producing this chemical, it was in Ohio, and they didn't even need to get out of the bus. The stench was so terrible that it came in through the closed windows of the bus, and they just said, the people who were arguing against it were like, okay, done, fine. We will change, we'll pay for the non-toxic ingredient. And it's not that intellectually they couldn't understand the problems, but there's just no substitute for for you being there, seeing with your eyes the change that happens, talking to the people. We can do more of this. Things like films, even at least listening to other people who've had direct experience, very, very helpful. And I hope we can give each other more of this too. That's a great message. Um, I think the the whole sphere of of influence has, and even power, like has has been getting a, a bad rap recently. And maybe it's always had a bad rap, but it, it feels like it's <laughs> probably it's, since it's, Machiavelli. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it feels like it's been having a particularly bad rap um, over 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 you know, recent years. Um, and for people, pe- people are less interested in the pursuit of power because the people that are powerful may not be people that they necessarily want to be emulating or, or they admire. Why would you say that it's important? For, and like you, you obviously um, are, are saying that uh, power, you know, you, if you can empower people to do goods, that's 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 that, that, that's what you want to do. But how, why would you? How would you argue 
to people say, well, no, people shouldn't be trying to get power at all because power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So just let's just, let's just leave, it all, leave it all behind. Certainly nobody should have absolute power. Yeah. <laughs> we can agree, <laughs> probably yeah. all of us on that. And a couple of people might disagree. The people who are striving for the absolute power. Okay. <laughs> all right. And, and there is some basis in that fear that people have where there's plenty of research on power and how even not just powerful people, but when you induce a feeling of power in many cases that actually reduces empathy. So it's not a small thing to say, let's empower everybody. And it's not that we are necessarily going to be as good as we think that we are when we have more power. But what happens if we are not pursuing power and influence, studying how these things happen and learning to be more influential and having more power is that we just leave the world in the hands of the power hungry people like those dictators and oligarchs and billionaires. And they're, they have no qualms about studying influence and figuring out what does it take to have power. So there's nothing that says power is good or bad. You know, it's like electricity, power a school or an electric chair. Fair we enough. decide what we do with it. And um, it, taking the, the people who are very good at using power and influence, um, the powerful, the billionaires, the oligarchs, um, and comparing that to those of us who are in the, you know, the climate, you know, the climate game, the climate, climate's uh, trying, to, trying to persuade within the, um, the realms of the climate crisis. How do you compare like, us and them? Like, uh, it seems to me they're better at it. <laughs> yeah. and, and scientists are the worst, mm. right? <laughs> so yeah. the, the people I find who are, I shouldn't say the least influential, but the most wrong-headed and reluctant about influence tend to be people who are smart and kind. And those of us who are smart and kind people trying to persuade other smart and kind people, we com just completely misunderstand how influence works. And I've been one of those people in my past where when I was working at Mattel and I would do a mountain of analysis and think that here, I've got the facts. Obviously you senior managers will make the best decision and I know what that is. So here's all the information you need. And then there's my rival who's just up there giving a lovely presentation and her, she's great sense of humor and funny jokes and accent and all that. And they're like, oh yeah, we'll go with her. Forget about the analysis that you did, Zoe. We think people are making decisions far more rationally and objectively than they are. And there's this process where with every perception and every judgment and every decision that we make, we have these immediate gut reactions and snap judgments that have to be either overridden or in many cases justified by the conscious part of our mind that's trying to be rational and deliberative. And when we don't understand that this is how influence works, we neglect that visceral gut reaction, our emotions that color the facts that we choose to pay attention to and the facts that we choose to act upon. So what we see as faculties of reason are far more often rationalization. I love the way that you can describe this as, you know, the, the gator and the judge, like you're, 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 you're the different way, actually talking about making snap decisions, well, that's the gator, <laughs> you know, talking about, you know, deliberating, well, that, that's the judge. Um, and it's really, 
great way of understanding kind of fundamentally quite difficult concepts. Could you could you kind of you know, pull that out a little, a little yeah, bit? Yeah, sure. Um, so for anyone watching who knows about System 1 and System 2, which you know about, this is the fundamental framework of behavioral economics. And that's the discipline that I come from as a researcher. And it's not a coincidence. It's that when I learned about behavioral economics, interested in persuasion and influence, this is the thing that's the best predictor of people's behavior when you're trying to influence them. The gator part, system one, is unconscious. For the most part, it's intuitive, automatic. We don't notice that process going on, even though this is what drives the vast majority of all of our decisions and behavior. And you could think of it like an alligator that's lurking below the surface of the water, constantly scanning for opportunities and threats. But the reason that I chose the analogy of the gator is because gators are super, super lazy. And they're so efficient that they have brain the size of a walnut, body that weighs half a ton, 500 kilos. And when you have so little brain with so much body, you have to be very, very careful about spending your resources. And so gators spend almost no resources on thinking or acting, and they can go up to three years without eating anything at all. So they're constantly scanning, perceiving, but in almost every case, what they're actually doing is nothing. So this is how we should predict other people will behave when we're trying to influence them. And those of us who care about the climate are so frustrated at other people not taking action when we're trying to influence them. But this is the reality of influence. Almost everyone in almost every situation, what they will do is nothing. So if we start with that fact, then say, okay, so what are all of the things that we might do or think about to nudge them in the rare cases that they might be nudgeable to taking action? And then the judge part is that conscious, slow, deliberative, effortful piece that this is maybe 5% of what's going on in our minds to determine our decisions and behavior. That's the part that cares about the facts, the analysis, the information but how it interprets those depends on the earlier judgments of the gator. So of course we need science. Of course we need analyses. Of course we need facts. It's just that that's the second stage instead of the first stage. For sure. Um, but we're dealing with something, we're dealing with a massive emergency that does take effort. Like there's no way of, of, avoid, of avoiding everything. effort. Yeah. Everyone, everything, yeah. yeah. So there's the kind of two two kind of points that that, that that run out, which maybe we could dig into. One is um, if you are afraid, your gator brain will tend to kick in, and uh, you'll, you'll bring out your 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 inner reptilian, yeah. and you'll be yep, so that's threat you, detection you, is yep, its th number th one yeah, job. Yeah. And right. and if you're the gator, you're not going to do anything about it. Because this part is really important that. Um, about influence when people are thinking like, well, sometimes fear tactics work and sometimes fear tactics don't work. And what fear tactics do really well is encourage inaction. What fear tactics don't do well is encourage action. So actually the fear of the climate crisis may be part of what's responsible for inaction. Mm -hmm. So the dominant response to a threat people talk about fight or flight, the dominant response is freeze. And this is true biologically in, when we're talking about physical threats, and it's true for people when we feel threatened, when you know we fight back, backlash, 
yes, sometimes we'll fight back, but typically what we do more often than not is we just ignore and focus on all of the other problems and crisis. And this one is so existential that ironically, it's really easy to try to hide from it. Yeah, it's existential, but it's uh, slow moving and it's macro. So what, what can I do? That's easier just to and, swim past And it. not enough of us have the personal experience that you've had. Yeah, yeah, to yeah. Get yeah. To yeah. See. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, as, and as, you, as you say with the gator, you know, you could be throwing, throwing hunks of meat at them and that's just right there in front of them. They're not going to eat it. They're just going to swim past it because it's too much effort. Like it's, it's a, yeah. the, the fear will just encourage you to swim past it. It's, it's, it's too much effort. Yeah, and, and with the climate crisis, it, even for someone like me, so I'm not a climate professional, right? I just really care about it a lot. And I don't know what the best actions are. I don't, for people in general, I have some idea for me, what I can do is help people influence people who can make powerful decisions and change policies and things like that. But, and, and I can, you know, give some money, but as far as what the policies should be, or as far as what the behaviors should be that we're encouraging people to do as a behavioral scientist, I feel like, ah, I have all of these, all of these ways to get to the place that you want to go, but I need to know the place that you want to go. I need to know the right place. What is the right policy? What is the right decision? And we're just fracturing people's attention. So the fracturing of attention is also a big piece of how it's easy to be not taking action. Yeah. Can, can I ask you about this? Of because course. you've thought about this a lot. What do you think is the number one policy that needs to Ooh, be changed? Wow, that's a, that's, a, that's a good question. If we're talking about the particular issue of carbon, um, I think the single biggest thing you could be doing is having a price on carbon, be it a tax, be it, be it um, however, whatever mechanism that you, that, that, that you have, um, a cap and trade, whatever. But that's a very limited, limited scope. Um, and it, it's a very, it'll be a very effective tool against one part of the problem. But it's a multifaceted problem. So it's, it's very, very hard to kind of say, well, if there's one thing you could change, I, but if we, if we need, need, need to, need to um, fight carbon, people need to be properly paying for the cost of, of, of the, the damage they're, do, they're making to the environment. And the only way of doing that is to have a price on carbon. Take, take the money that's, that's then, then um, raised from that and put it back into, into mitigation, into, into, into carbon capture and storage, into whatever, to try and fight that particular part of the, the climate action. And what I would love to do is help empower people with the tools, strategies, science that they need to do things like change policies. But it's also very complicated that it feels for a lot of us like we need to become experts in the science and we need to become experts in the policy. And it takes a lot of time and expertise. And even when you are, there's still lots of fighting and there's not agreement about how to do this. So, and, and it needs to happen so, so quickly. So I, I believe that we can all benefit if we rally around two or three things and we just focus on these two or three things for now. And well, it, it, there's gonna be something wrong with all of the ideas, right? And like you say, like people push back against you. Okay, fine, but let's just take one. And research on social movements has found that the, a prerequisite requirement for a social movement to be successful is consistent messaging. And we don't have that with the climate crisis. We just don't have an agreement about 
what does it take? Yeah, and yeah. If, it were, if it was trying to make a kind of one unifying uh, argument, it wouldn't be on the carbon uh, on the carbon tax because that people would just be fighting back. That was a magic wand thing. Um, unifying message. I want to give you that magic wand myself. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, unifying message would be around renewables. No one can argue against renewables anymore. It's just that that argument is done. It's over. That's that's if we want to get behind one thing, let's build as many wind turbines, as many solar panels you know, as 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 possible. Get them all up there. Over overload the system. Get 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 more in the system system than you than you need to. You've got some redundancy in there. So okay, the, let's do it. Renewables, let's do it. everybody. Renewables, let's do it. Yeah. Uh, okay, sorry yeah. to keep keep yeah. going, but um, because we're talking about influence and, and we're having this conversation and we want other people to have conversations about climate change, part of the challenge is, let's say, renewables. Most of us just don't have any direct over a uh, direct influence over whatever it's going to take to build out this renewables infrastructure. So, and yeah, thank you for this, right? It's easy to feel like, okay, well, people need to solve that. So what should people like us and our friends and everybody listening, what should we be doing about the transition to renewable energy? The single greatest thing you can do is talk to your local representative, talk to your politicians, get them to be putting, to be allowing the planning, uh, planning laws to be, to be promoting Renewables. Now, like, there's a lot of really good, really well-intentioned planning regulations out there which say you can't build tall vertical structures in countrysides for really good reasons. You don't want skyscrapers in the middle middle of rural areas. You don't. But wind turbines are fundamentally different. Oh wow! So if you if you can just if you can have the assumption that yes, wind turbines are good, so you need a really good reason to not have them. For example, birds or bats or whatever else. But but you need to have a good reason for for to turn them down. That's is that's absolutely fine but uh, but you need to start c come with the starting principle that these are good some parts of the West scotland is a really good example of uh, from there being no renewables they came and said no you need to be arguing really strongly as to why this isn't here and if you don't come up with that it's, it's getting built that's that's nicola sturgeon and all the all the you know her pre predecessors have been done fantastic stuff on the the planning policy in scotland and it's a world leader in, re in renewables now um just south of the border in England, complete opposite. <laughs> you know, you've had the the assumption is still no large uh, vertical vertical structures in the countrysides, so therefore you, you just, it's impossible to get things built. Wow. Yeah. So this really simple thing, just just planning legislation. You know? And the, and these so for somebody to influence their local planning committee, they would be as a citizen voter coming together with other people who care about this issue, and not just you by yourself. Who cares about this but your friends your neighbors the other activists in your community to have a plan where there's a staged successive series of influence attempts right and series of touch points and um some climate activists don't know about this guide that was published in the u.s freely called the indivisible guide and um the tea party movement was this really scary right-wing movement in the U.S. that was very successful at influencing politicians. And some people who were working on the other side in Congress while that was happening wrote down the playbook for the Tea Party movement, but it was for their progressive friends, and they've just made it freely available. Now there's a second edition of the Indivisible Guide. But for anybody who's wanting to influence their politicians, I highly recommend these free guides available on the internet. So moving back a teeny tiny bit, tiny bit again, um there, okay, I'll, I'll do this by what kind of way of example. Um, you recently recommended a book called The Uninhabitable Earth, mm. which is, you know, so to, 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 to say, say the least, apocalyptic, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, which says to me that there, that there is a role for um, fear. There is a role for, for, for kind of the 
the, the alligator brain, the crocodile brain to be in there. Um, but that's kind of slightly kind of contradictory to instinct on, well, you don't want to be scaring people because they'll just swim by. So how does, how, 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 how did you end up recommending that book for bearing in mind, you don't want to be scaring people, even though this is a deeply scary topic and deeply scary book? Yeah, thank you. And I don't mean to be too facile and just say, oh yeah, we should never scare people. Um, and by the way, David Wallace Wells is now sharing widely these all of these good things that are happening and how actually there's been more progress than we have recognized um there's really really freaking long way to go but david wallace wells is the author of uninhabitable earth and he was the new york times climate science writer and that book was very powerful for me because that was the book that told me wow zoe your worst case scenario is actually better than the best case scenario when this climate journalist had gone and talked to scientists all over the world. And that was a wake up call to say, wow, so you had no idea. You thought you did, you thought you were interested in this, but um, to have it all collected in one place, in one book, and it's not just what is the impact going to be. And I mean, it's all of these different areas, right? Including plagues and wars and a direct heat deaths that when you give somebody a fear inoculation to have them accept a new reality, you don't keep hammering them with the fear. So this book is an example. There have been movies um, like Al Gore's movie, right? For example, that served that purpose of a fear inoculation that can shift your mindset to a new reality. And once you accept a new reality, you don't need to keep being afraid about it. And then you can decide, okay, from here, the new status quo is different from what I thought. From here, I can take action. So I think this is what a helpful kind of fear appeal or fear intervention can do is the reality shift. Okay. And then, okay, great. What do we do together? Yeah, change the track a little bit now. Um, actually, massively dramatically now. <laughs> and go to talk about the subject of uh, charisma. And you tell a wonderful story about uh, Prince and how um, he taught you a lot about the meaning of charisma. Would you, you care to share that with us? We're, yes, and we're so lucky that we got to see Prince because until you got to see Prince also, he's undoubtedly the most charismatic person I have ever been in the same room with and when I got to go to this Prince concert in Las Vegas during his final years of life he owned a little club and he would perform there regularly and the club just has maybe like one or two hundred people so you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and finally probably like two hours late Prince takes the stage and I'm so excited and he takes the stage and he takes the microphone and he looks directly into my eyes and his first line I think was are we alone and I turned to my friend like, catching my breath and I said oh my god I'm about to faint and then the woman next to me total stranger just literally drops to the ground in a dead faint and the paramedics come and they load her onto the stretcher and as they're taking her out 
I say, oh my God, has that ever happened before? And they said, it's not the first time. And I've heard people describe faint, that women fainted when Bill Clinton was doing his tours in Arkansas and, you know, plenty of women were fainting at Beatles concerts. And so we literally can lose consciousness from massive charisma. And what interests me about charisma is, first of all, how can we have more of it and how can I teach it? Because that's the number one skill that people have told me they want to have to become more influential. But to unpack it a little bit, people think of charismatic people as getting all of the attention. And that is what charisma is, is we pay attention to those people. But the way that they do it is by giving their laser focused attention. And I, this, oh God, what book was it where I read about someone who was a journalist describing his interview um, in San Quentin prison with Charles Manson and how Charles Manson makes you feel like you're the only person in the room, even though he was the only person in the room in this situation. But Charles Manson had that kind of charisma that cult leaders also have where they make you feel like the only person in the room. What was it like when you got to go to the oh, Prince concert? That was amazing. Yeah, he, he did something quite similar. He, he turned up and I was, I was kind of 17 or 18 and um, was there, was, was studying in Paris, uh, studying French in Paris. And uh, a couple of friends of mine have managed to, a Spanish guy and a German girl, uh, neither of them into Prince at all. I managed to persuade them, badger them, because, come on, come on, it's amazing, it's very brilliant, brilliant. Went out. He was an hour late coming on the stage. These two friends of mine were just, were going, what are you doing here? Why, why are we here? Because why are we here? He came out, they're slow, but slow, there's build and build and build and build and build and all the tension, all the excitement. He then came out, he's walked out just on his own in the middle, the middle of the stage, stood, stood in the middle of it. Everyone was losing their minds, losing their, losing, losing, losing all, all rationale. And he just stood there. He just stood there. He waited and he stood there. I was getting more and more and more and more um, wound up. I just started to play, play a couple of bars of music and, I, and everyone was just quiet. Mm. And I was like, wow, you've got it. See, like, it's, it is enormously difficult. Like how, I, I could never understand what that was. Like how, how he managed to do that. Like that's the, the power that he held it's over, over tens of thousands of people. It was just remarkable. You know, that moment that you're talking about before you speak, when you take the stage, is a little tiny but powerful thing that I teach people now when I'm teaching charisma workshops. One of the first skills we practice is taking the stage. And you come to the stage, and stage, usually it's the front of the room, right? You come to the front of the room and you pause and you focus on one person before you say anything. And then you begin. And what you get to feel is the connection that happens in the room happens in the pauses. And there's this, now we're getting like really afar from climate, but we'll come back. Um, and, and of course, being more charismatic can help all of us deliver our messages better, right? Which is probably why you're interested in the topic. There's a time warp between the stage and the audience and time feels like it passes faster on stage than it does in the audience. So for speakers, and especially if you're nervous, it's easy to speed through. And also we tend to use filler phrases like and or so, then to fill the gaps. But the attention of the audience is always scrambling to catch up. They're a little bit behind. 
And when they catch up to us is in the pauses. And it's very powerful to do it at the beginning before you start, just like Prince did. I Did you know um, already that Prince had been so shy and uncharismatic when he was growing up? I was a big fan. Um, so you so I did. These my, my two friends didn't, but when we all walked out of the concerts, they like they're down, they're the lifelong friend, uh, li lifelong friend, and lifelong fans. Uh, like mm -hmm. after that, they were sort of transformed from. They were they were massively into him, but they had no idea of the background and no idea that he was such a, a shy and reserved. He was a complete nerd. They're just a geek. He yeah. is most one of the most talented musicians the world has ever known. Like he's his ability to pick up instruments and play them like like yeah. maestros are just absolutely phenomenal, but not the person that is the persona out on stage was not something as i understand it is particularly natural than that. yeah yeah that he was such an introvert and when warner brothers first signed him they watched him in concert they listened to him he's so talented but then they watched him in concert just slowly 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 turning his back to the wall and he's singing to the wall and he can't speak above a whisper so they said we'll sign you but you're never going on tour and it was rick james in his super freak tour who invited prince to come and be his warm-up act and rick james said that prince sucked so much at the beginning of the tour he had a number one single at that point that's why rick james invited him but prince sucked so much he was getting booed off stage but he was emulating rick james and he was copying some of the things that rick james was doing until by the end of the tour just this little apprenticeship rick james was jealous of prince <laughs> according to rick james absolutely yeah yeah just to to bring this back to climate conversations and an overlap with charisma is that a lot of us, when we have a message to share, we're passionate about it, we are terrible at listening. And so we're anti-charismatic and we're just like, listen, 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 I have, I have the answer. The world is going to end. I have the solution. You have to listen to me. Here's all the things that you have to do. And it will help a lot if we can step back and have a conversation on climate with that individual human being we're talking to. And we have the goal of listening to them and understanding them, understanding what are the deep values that are leading to the thoughts and opinions they have. And if we are trying to win an argument, we'll fail, right? And, and just to have the idea of a, a charismatic conversation happens when we're listening. One more piece that popped into my head of behavioral science that's relevant here is listening to each other's voices. There have been a number of experiments um, done by some researchers uh, like Juliana Schroeder and Nick Epley who are looking at the power of the human voice and how when we hear somebody's actual human voice, we find them more intelligent and we find them more persuasive. And so when we're having these conversations with people, it's important that we listen to each other's voices and it's totally different from just reading somebody's words. Is that weird to you? <laughs> it, it is, no, it is, it is strange because I, I would like to think that's true. I would genuinely really, really like to think that's true. But there are layers upon layers of prejudice within people's um, yeah, within, within, within humans, yeah. within humans, and some one human list, well, reading a, a piece of paper um, can ha come to a view on that piece of paper. But if it's said in a voice that's a voice that, for whatever daft reason that they have in their minds, that they think is is a is a is a, a an intonation or whatever that they don't respect. I'm sure this is also true, right? That that through our voices we define some in-groups 
and outgroups. And so this is another factor at play, 100%. Sometimes, like, um, like here in the United States, we have stereotypes about people with Southern accents. And so it's going to be harder for you at an arm's length as somebody with a Southern accent, right? Like a stranger just hears your voice. However, when we're talking about conversations with individual human beings, there's also a large body of research finding that shifting somebody's political viewpoints happens from direct contact. So in, when um, there have been studies about things like uh, gay and trans rights bills, and the best way to shift somebody's opinion from something homophobic or transphobic is to have gay people and trans people just talk to you. So it might be that when you first, that you have a gut reaction to someone who has whatever voice is not the kind of voice that you normally trust, but having a little bit of a longer conversation than just that, moving past that immediate gator reaction. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more with this. What the best, best way of inoculating yourself against that type of thing is education. It's, it's talking to people and understanding that... Experience. Yeah, yeah pe people, people are people. It doesn't yeah. matter color of skin, voice, sex, or sexual orientation, whatever. People are people. Yeah. Um, but it kind of raises another interesting point, which is um, how do you inoculate yourself against the... Um, against charisma? Against, against the, dark, the darker side of charisma? So charisma would just be one of the many ways or reasons in which somebody's influencing you to do something that you would regret, right? And, um, and also just simply liking somebody can lead you to make bad decisions. We tend to like each other 12% more than we realize, so you're even, even more charming and likable than you think when you're very charming and likable, at least 12% more. Um, so, so we're biased toward liking people that we meet, and people we like we tend to try to do things that they request, if we can. Um, we tend to think that whatever it is that they're doing is probably normal, right? So there's, they, they determine, people we like determine our social norms. And um, there are lots of people trying to influence us to do things that were we thinking more clearly, we wouldn't want to do. And that thinking clearly is a huge piece of this. And con artists call it the ether. When you're in the ether, this is total gator territory, you have no judge faculties, any emotion puts you into gator mode, any strong emotion. So it can be good emotions like spiritual bliss, ecstasy, sexual arousal, fear, anger, craving, jealousy, uh, just stress, just being in a rush, putting you in that, and, and just being completely exhausted. All of these emotions um, take away the judge faculties as you yourself. You can't control your gator decisions. They will, the gator does whatever it wants. It's not conscious. It's reacting automatically. But what we can do is try to step back and not make a decision when somebody is trying to influence us when we're in some state of high emotional arousal. Um, so sleeping on a big decision would be one example. But then when you're talking about the just horrible effects of massive social media campaigns and human beings and also bots and things like this is, it is 
very, very hard to say, here's the strategy to fight against it because we have billions of dollars trying to figure out how to pivot with any strategy that we have to fight this. Okay, whatever, you know, however we respond to it, we're reacting and then there's going to be the next wave of, um, you know, like just, it, for example, deep fake videos will be so hard for us to know how to process or resist because we will have and and phone calls from people we know people we trust we can be on zoom with somebody we think we know who they are or we we trust them and it turns out to not be them at all so i know that's like extreme futurist <laughs> kind of fear well, a key concept in your work is, um, again, going back to our gator brain or lizard, lizard brains, whatever, is the concept of ease and how we need to be making things easy for people to, uh, to, 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 to change their behaviors. Uh, if it's difficult, they're not going to do it. But we also have, have the problem in the, in the climate world of so much of what we, of the way we live our life does need to change if we're going to be, you know, fighting this climate emergency. Um, how do those things, those things tally up? Like, how can we be, be persuading people to make big changes? Yeah, I don't blame people for not wanting to make big changes, right? And not wanting to make sacrifices. Because it's hard and we have a status quo bias and we feel the losses so much more strongly than we feel a gain. When you said it's important that we make things easy for people, um, what ease is the number one driver of behavior. So if you're trying to predict what somebody's going to do in any situation, predict that they will take the easy path and you'll probably be right. There's this metric that's called the customer effort score made by some marketing researchers. And it's essentially just the question, how much effort did it take for you to do that thing? And they find that this out predicts spending and loyalty and um, negative word of mouth better than anything. And so it doesn't matter how good the outcome was, how happy you were with the outcome. If it was a pain in the ass, you're going to complain to your friends. And if it was easy, you're just going to let it go. And what the customer effort score is measuring, though, is not actual effort. It's perceived effort. So what we can do when we're trying to influence someone to change their behaviors is help make it feel easier for them. And there all kinds of ways that we can help make it feel easier. But even things like codifying one behavior or giving it a name, having, having people be able to have conversations more easily and talk about um, like the, the movement to have people eat less meats when finally it's settled on the frame plant-based. This is not the most inspiring frame but now there's a shared frame that's better than vegetarian where it's about you as a person. Are you a good person or are you a bad person? That we can just say like, hey, there's a plant-based item on the menu, right? And you know, do I wanna have that plant-based thing? And there's no moralizing. So it feels easier for someone who eats meats to choose a plant-based meal or even lifestyle than to decide, are you going to be vegetarian? But there's nothing logistically or, or literally easier about these two meals because they're the same. And the idea being that uh, a whole series of little changes adds up to something quite, quite significant. So my, my, well, kind of, my concern is that 
we need to be making very large changes, fundamental changes, and and meat-free Mondays or sort of meat meat-free months or uh, recycling isn't going to get us there. And even if you make these things important, doesn't that just encourage people kind of oh sure well I did I didn't I didn't I didn't eat, eat meat on Thursday therefore I'm doing my bit. So yeah, the licensing effect yeah. is a big deal, and it's a big fear that when you do something, it feels like you've checked the box and you're cool. Um, the the distinction I think is really important between incremental baby steps and focusing on what's the next step. And what a lot um, an influence mistake that a lot of people make, especially people like activists who care about movements, including the climate, is okay, we need to save the world. And we need to try to influence people to care about saving the world. But what they need to know is what is the step that I need to take? And it will feel easier if we give people, this is the next step. I'm going to make it easy as I can for you to take that next step. So when we were talking about, for example, we got literal concrete on how about if you try to influence the planners, planning committee in your area to change the legislation about tall buildings. And then, okay, how do you make that happen? You find a group of people in your town who cares about this like you do, and like, here's a guide. So getting as literal as, okay, what is your next step? First step is the guide. Next step is find the friends. Next step is figure out what are the regulations, right? In your town, or you know, maybe that comes earlier. Next step is you plan the outreach to the city planner. And when you reach out to the city planner, you're saying exactly here's the thing that needs to change. And a lot of motivated citizens groups will be writing the legislation for the lawmakers and also lobbyists, right? But to say, okay, lawmaker, here's a draft of the legislation. You don't need to write it yourself. We've done the thing for you. If you believe us, this is all that needs to happen. You you have kind of talked in the, in the past about kind of the big the big ask, which then allows you to which makes smaller asks a bit more a bit more palatable. The idea of asking for something bigger than you expect to get, with the expectation that the other person will say no, and then you'll ask for something smaller, which then sounds reasonable in comparison is overall in one-on-one influence conversations a helpful strategy. However, you can't be the boy or girl who cried wolf. So you can't be seen as someone who is making exaggerated requests or exaggerated claims or fear-mongering to try to get something less. You need to have credibility. And so if you're gonna ask for something huge that you don't expect to get, it needs to be something that you really do want. Or if you are telling people how disastrous the world is going to be in a few years because of what's happening, you need to be giving real solid scientifically backed up claims and be very careful of exaggerating or cherry picking the worst case scenario if you're trying to persuade someone who's far away from you Mm. on this fear. So, so ask for something huge, ask for a baby step. We need to be doing all of it. The goal is huge. And the way to get there is in concrete step by concrete step. And those steps don't have to be small. Sometimes individuals will be motivated 
by being asked to step up in a meaningful way, making a significant investment or sacrifice. And there's beauty in that too, and motivation. Yeah, yeah I think we understand the science. We understand, we, we, we have a pretty good idea that things are going to be bad. We just don't know exactly how bad. Um, and we've got a pretty good idea about how we can be going about trying to mitigate these problems. When you say a pretty good idea, though, we have nine million pretty good ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is that's yeah, it's it, it's it's a problem. But we know we we do know action needs to be taken, and um, we do know what type of actions will help. But without that, there's a whole bunch of things we can be doing doing that will help. But in a lot of cases, a lot of a lot of people aren't, and a lot of people aren't interested in. It. Like there's there's a danger of which which you've, you've written about and talked about in, in self deception, and it seems to me that the ignoring of the climate crisis is a pretty good, like, you know, we're making our planet un uninhabitable for humans, and we're yeah. humans. This is a really daft thing to be doing. And yeah. um, it seems like a pretty good example of self-deception. Like, how does, how does the, the, you know, the, the academia, how does the, the scholarly, scholarly works help us to kind of get through that and understand why we would be deceiving ourselves in that way? We can no longer, our children can no longer live here unless yeah. we do something about it. You know? Self-deception, and at the very least, denial, is certainly pervasive in this area. And I've done some research on self-deception and some of that includes finding that it's very difficult to strip people of their self-deception. And it's really easy to send them back to self-deception even once they had their vision unclouded. That's depressing. What I would say though is people who care about the climate are wasting, currently wasting a great deal of energy trying to persuade the unbelievers when we should be persuading each other to take action. What we need now is actions. And there's so many of us who are believers, but we're not yet actors or we are actors, but not to the degree that we could be or we should be. This is the low hanging fruit. The people who are non-believers in denial or naysayers, flat or whatever they are, those people will take so much effort to motivate, mobilize. It may never happen by any attempt at persuasion. It's possible that it will only happen by their direct experience with a crisis. I hope that is not true, but we have all of this latent energy and talent that's not being put to use by people who are willing. So I believe first and foremost, motivate the willing, mobilize the willing. And when we have the willing all going, then we focus on the harder task of sharing the truth with the people who aren't inclined to believe it. When we do that, we need a very different strategy that will include whatever we can do that's as close to direct experience as some of us are having right now. Mm. And do you think that that's so much time and energy has been put into trying to persuade the essentially the unpersuadable? Do you yeah. think that that's part of the fatigue within the, yes, you know, the climate movement? Like absolutely. Lot? It's mm. demotivating mm. And, and it's frustrating and we're getting in arguments and nobody's listening to each other because there are people on the other side trying to persuade us, right? So they don't want to be persuaded. They want to persuade us and then we're trying to resist that. But, but what we can do more effectively than just trying to persuade everybody 
that this is a crisis and we all need to act is thinking about key people we know or key influencers within the community of unbelievers or people we know are in denial and have a strategy for influencing those people. Like whoever this person is for you in your country or community or your organization that a group of people wants to be persuading, how about if you bring that person to Greenland? And this is what happened for a couple of US journalists recently who, and one of them was Brett Stevens, who's fairly conservative, goes to Greenland and sees what's happening and goes, oh my God, I knew I was reading about this. And it doesn't have to be Greenland, but whatever the equivalent is, give a few influencers, including journalists, media people, people who will be influencing others, give them direct experience and that will help. Frank Luntz is the, a Republican strategist. He's the best framer, at least in the United States. He's the one who's responsible for the shift in framing between global warming and climate change. This was politically motivated and funded by the Republican Party and the guy who did it was Frank Luntz. He was persuaded to come to the other side where now he's trying to help people who are working on the climate crisis because he lives in Bel Air, Los Angeles and a wildfire caused him and his family to have to evacuate their home and they thought they might lose their home and die. And if this person can make the leap to the other side, but only through direct personal experience, that kind of change is possible for everybody, but it's not through just conversations and whatever kind of persuasion we're talking about. Um, the, the framing of the conversation around climate is, is it's, it couldn't be more important. It's like the, the changing from climate change um, to global warming and now hopefully towards climate crisis right. is, is it's really important because like crisis has got these <laughs> crises are really bad you need to act but i mightn't be the end it mightn't be over you know crises that it does have that that kind of implication that you can do something about it you know yes. like you can you can react yes so, if uh, we act now and that's that's a kind of example where it's a tiny tiny intervention, small conversation that we can have with outsized impact where we don't have to do any extra work. But when we're talking about climate with someone in an informal sort of way, and they say something about global warming or they say something about climate change, and we can just say, you probably wouldn't think about it, but when you use that phrase, it has the effect of making it seem like not such a big deal. and people like me have made a shift intentionally to call it a climate crisis because of exactly the reasons that you just shared. So if you're up for it, it will make a difference for other people if you're willing to call it a climate crisis. And this is so important for us at work and for leaders in organizations to decide this is what we're calling it in our organization. Yeah, no, no, absolutely agree. Yeah, and I've been, been calling it climate crisis for for the same reason for, yeah, for a while. Exactly. And uh, talking about, and when I, try to when i'm talking to people who you don't want to be spooking you know you could be more talking about the energy transition because that's uh it's something that is happening it is inevitable we're a part of it you know it, it is it is yeah. transition we're, we're in train of it uh, or the climate crisis we're talking to other people never yeah. talk about about uh, global warming or right. anything yeah right yeah. and and the framing just like you said of energy transition is so nice because it's also inclusive and 
everybody's part of it. So it's not saying, you know, even if you're kicking and screaming, it's just, hey, here's this thing. Yeah, no, for here's sure. Here's this thing that's happening. Yeah. One thing that's, um, I think, on the side of the the, the, the people who, who talk about climate, um, there's there's a kind of softness and there's a kind of a vulnerability on the, the side of, of, of climate. Some of them. So, Some of them not at all. There, 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 there are a couple of the a couple of angry people for sure, for sure, yeah. and very effective angry people and wonderful angry people as well. And, and some ineffective and, angry yeah. people. Yeah, but, no, yeah, no, no, but sure, like sure, any sure, any yeah, cause, yeah. 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 Um, but uh, on the on the other side of the argument, there does tend to be a far more kind of you know the the, the strong man, the the the, the the kind of brute strength, you know, will get through, you know, type type of mentality. Um, but, but maybe those are just the screechers on the other side, because the majority on the other side are in the just day to day life. Like, it's just not something I can worry about right now. Sure. But right? they don't tend to be the, the people who are doing the influencing, though. The people who are just getting on with life are just getting on with life. But the, the loudest voices on one side, one side or the other, the loudest voices tend to be kind of the more, I, I, at least in my perception, the more kind of vulnerable. We need to look after the polar bears, you know, on uh, on this side, and uh, on the other side, it's more we are. We look after ourselves, you know. We look like we, ourselves in the moment, because today is all that counts, really. That type 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 of type of attitudes. It's again massively oversimplifications of both, but I mean, it seems to me like the more influential voices on the other side are the greenwashing voices, okay, who are saying. It's going to be okay, and we're doing things to mitigate and look at us, we're recycling, look at us, we built two wind turbines. It, to me, the danger is much more from those powerful voices who are saying it's going to be okay. They're not denying that there's a crisis, but they're minimizing the amount of effort that has to happen. And so it lets normal people, like we're not talking about very fringe voices saying, you know, carpe diem, gather ye roses while we may. Yes, there are some of those people who are very, very vocal, but it's not that they're persuading any large swath of people to be in that kind of mindset, but there's a very large swath of people who imagine that we're going to be okay because it's not really as bad as people say and because there are things that we're doing to mitigate it. So the more reasonable voices on the other side are the scarier, more powerful ones. Okay, fair enough. I guess what I was trying to, trying to kind of get, get towards is uh, if I might kind of give, give, quote yourself back to yourself. <laughs> it says, uh, look, look, really, really beautiful, beautiful line you wrote was, um, sometimes we succeed and sometimes our hearts break open. I guess that, that was, that, that was, that's a really, really lovely line. Could you go on, unpack that a little bit? You seem to be talking about a subtle connection between success, failure, and feeling. That feeling, and uh, when I wrote that in my book, I was, this is in the last chapter, and I was just crying while I was writing the last chapter. And then when I read it in the audio book, I was crying while I was reading it aloud. Because there's this beauty and connection that we get to tap into this deep, deep well of interconnection and empathy that we have as we work on something as big a problem as the climate crisis. And there are so many stumbles and failures along the way. But when we're in it together, 
we pick each other up and it's not that we don't fall, but we pick each other up. We dust off our dirt, wipe off the blood and we keep moving forward. And there's this idea that I feel really strongly about that if we are not in that situation of failing sometimes, we definitely set our sights too low. And in the climate crisis, none of us knows exactly what it's going to take. We don't even know exactly what it's going to look like to succeed. Just that a lot of us know that it's taking way more than we're doing and succeeding is going to take way longer than we want it to. So we don't need to plan for failure or hope for failure. There are all kinds of fails on that path. And I think we can have some empathy and some compassion for ourselves and for each other where let's not hold ourselves up to some perfect standard. Like look at 350.org, the organization that I'm supporting with some of the profits from my book. They named, they took a stand when they named themselves 350 because that's the, the limit for the amount of carbon that we can have in the atmosphere and have things still be okay. We hadn't gotten there when they started their organization and now we've far surpassed it. So there are conversations where people keep asking them, are you going to change the name of your organization? Is that a failure? No, it's a reality. There's nothing that's changed about the number 350. And this is, this is still such an important marker. And there, yeah, there's failure and tears, bloodshed, death along the way of doing everything that we can to solve the climate crisis. And that's, that's the reality that once we can accept it, we move forward and we do this in solidarity with each other. Mm, yeah, it takes yeah. all of us. Yeah, no, no, I agree. Um, I know we talked about briefly, briefly before about um, failure and about recovering from failure. Um, and if you do fail, how difficult it might be to be getting your credibility back, to be getting, getting, getting up and going again. I think it's really important that in this in this particular fight, in this this particular battle, there's no there's no doubt it's a fight. We have permission to fail. You know, we, we have permission. Yeah. We 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 aim high, and if you fall flat on your face, that's okay. Just yeah. you, you've tried, and you keep on. You, know, you just brush it off, off off and go again. Now, unless you're unless you're well, as you say, unless you're failing, probably not trying hard enough. Yeah, you're not and framing is so important here. Mm. Not just saying here's the goal and we're going to reach it, mm. but with all of the goals that we have here's the goal, here's how we're going to do the best that we can to get there. And communication about like, say, you know, the Paris Accords, right? The big failure. So what if the conversation around this had been, here's what we agree needs to happen. Here's what we agree needs to happen if we have the possibility of getting there and a real conversation about how likely is it that we get there, we don't know this is the goal, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We think that there's only a 20% chance that we can make it, but here's how we can do everything possible to be in the 20% instead of the 80%. Oh, you didn't get there. Well, that was that was to be expected. But even, uh, actually an interesting, so I mentioned, mentioned him a, a little, little earlier on before camera server, but uh, JP Benoit, kind of the uh, uh, wonderful economics professor, um, way he was framing, framing the conversation was, if you're talking to people who are, he mightn't be believers. What he suggested was, well, even if they believe that there's a 10% chance or a 12% chance of there being a catastrophic failure, isn't that enough? 
Like if it's just such a bad, like such a bad outcome, shouldn't you be trying to do everything you can to try and avoid even a small chance of a bad outcome? Because if it happens, it is so bad. You should be yeah. trying, trying, trying to move, move, move ahead and do it. You've talked quite a lot about getting out of the kind of the, the solo hero, you know, mentality and moving towards kind of armies of angels and how how we need to be, um, you know, getting you know in this together. Um, and how only an army of angels can be solving these these, you know, these, these big existential problems that we have. Uh, would you have a, kind of a, a rallying cry for the, you know, the for people who might might be listening and might be, be willing to become a part of that army of angels? The army of angels is collective action, right? And to invite an individual we know to do something with us together is one of the most powerful things that we can do. And this is where involvement and in going to rallies can really, really help. So a lot of people don't go to protests because they feel like it doesn't do anything. It's not influencing politicians. It's not change. It's just all of these people showing up and feeling like they're taking action. But bringing someone with you to a direct action shows yourself that you care deeply enough to take your time and your energy and bring this person. And it gives this other person a direct experience of being with and talking to other people who care deeply enough about this issue to take action. So what I would say just for each person, if you don't know exactly what your next step is, show up to, to a direct action and don't be alone. Bring somebody with you. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And just as a final message, um, you, if you're speaking to uh, someone who is, might be thinking of entering into the field of, you know, of, of persuasion or entering into the field of, uh, with particular with a climate bent, um, could you say, like, why should the student of tomorrow be, you know, pursue this? Like, why influence and particularly influencing it with a climate bent? Influence is what is going to change the world, solve the climate crisis, influences what makes almost anything important happen. It's not like you have to focus your whole entire life and career on studying influence. It's whatever it is that you want to make, whatever change you make in the world, even just whatever difference you want to make for your own self, your family, your community, your organization, influences the way that you get there. So there is no other way. There's no other way. And I'm excited to be able to help interest and inspire some people to be a little bit more mindful about studying and learning about influence, to practice it so that we're not, like we said at the beginning, leaving influence in the hands of the power hungry. So thank you so much. That was an absolutely wonderful conversation. Hugely appreciated. Thank you thank so you. much, Chris. Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. We hope that you enjoyed it. Hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels and we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. This series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. These are conversations that you just can't afford to miss.